0: Sam, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Now you are a geophysicist, right? What on earth is a geophysicist?
1: Uh, That's a great question. I, you know, I think geophysicists study all things physics on geo, (laughs) so Earth, other planets, wherever they are. And for me specifically, I am really interested in glaciology and hydrology. Um, So I I really like the ice and water parts of geophysics.
0: That's really cool. And What stage in your career are you at?
1: Right now, I am in the hopefully final phase of my PhD. (laughs) So I'm in the last year, and I'm just kind of wrapping up my research. So I would consider myself to be
0: uh, near the end of the PhD. Wonderful. And have you always studied glaciers and and geophysics? Or did you study something else in your undergrad degrees? In my undergrad,
1: I was quite different. I did my undergrad at the University of Alberta, where I did a degree in engineering physics, which is kind of a mix between a physics degree and an electrical engineering degree. And I specialized there in nanoelectronic engineering. So trying to understand like the building blocks of modern electronic devices, which, you know, is, I suppose, quite different (laughs) than the glaciers that I'm interested in now.
0: Does that contribute to your work right now?
1: I would say yes. Um, You know, math is math, and that's really great. It transfers, which is really, really useful. Um, I've actually been surprised that there's been a lot of times that I've fallen back on my old notes from undergrad and my even circuits courses, which I did not think I'd be revisiting, (laughs) studying glaciers. Um, I think one of the things that I got out of my engineering degree was really... The lesson that I really enjoyed being in community-oriented programs. Um, I think engineering, like more so than some other undergrads, is very uh, community-oriented, where you really get to know everybody. There's it's easy to meet people. There's lots of clubs. Um, and leaving that, I realized afterwards that it was a really great thing. And those are the types of environments. Um, that I like to work in. So that is really something that I took with me going forward, too.
0: That's really cool. Do you find that a sense of community is
1: also in geophysics? To a different degree. I think that a lot of the difference is perhaps like the nature of graduate work, where it's, you know, much more independent, much less uh, collaborative, in a sense. Um, But I think to some degree it's still there because, you know, everybody (laughs) in our department, we have a lot in common in our interests and what we value and think is important. And so I think that that uh, really ties a lot of folks together in geophysics.
0: Why did you make the change? Why did you get into rivers and glaciology? That's
1: a really good question. Um, I would say that, you know, there's a lot that I really liked about engineering, like the people and where I was um, and like the community stuff that I've brought up. But I it, the electronics part never really sparked joy. Like that was never the thing that drove me. You know, it didn't wake me up in the morning, and I wasn't super stoked to learn about circuits necessarily. So I remember one time near the end of my undergrad, and I was talking with a friend, and we were thinking about what we're going to do next. And I was just like, oh, I think rivers are so cool. <laughs> and I, w- I would love to do something with rivers, but like, what is that? And he just really encouraged me to pursue it. And it sounds kind of silly because, you know, I had never put together that that was a thing that you could do. I just thought they were out there doing their own thing. Um, and so what I did is I spent some time, um, you know, looking at, projects and places that were at the intersection of things that I liked to do, problems that I thought were important, and skills that I already had. So I really was thinking about, like, I think climate change is an important problem. Um, I My skills include math. <laughs> and I also really like rivers, and I like snow, and I like cold places. And I really just tried to, you know, make a list of where can I do all of these things all at once. And I realized pretty quickly that it would involve grad school, because I had a nanoelectronics background, and I couldn't just pop in and do river stuff. And so I just made a list of a bunch of professors who did work in this area. And that's how I ended up at UBC with my supervisor, you know, Valentina Radich, who is a glaciologist.
0: You married kondo your degree.
1: Yeah, no, I really did. I, I realized that uh, circuits did not spark joy, so they had to go.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. That sounds really exciting. Uh, in your studies, have you discovered anything really cool or, or realized anything about the world that you'd care to share?
1: Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, probably my discovery-wise, it was in the first part of my PhD where I was really trying to answer, you know, what are the communities in Alberta who have their water supplies um, the most impacted by the loss of glaciers? Um, because we expect to lose a vast majority of the ice in Alberta by the end of the century. And so I really wanted to figure out who is gonna be impacted by this loss. It seems very dramatic. One of the issues I learned though is that It's hard to find where people actually get their water supplies. Um, I thought that I would be able to just, you know, Google Alberta water supplies and see where everybody gets it from. Uh, But I realized that that was not the case. And so I spent some time putting together a database for almost 600 communities throughout the province. And then once I had that, I went through historical river flows and tried to figure out, well, where in the past have glaciers mattered the most. And then I could put those two together to figure out you know, where are the communities who get their water from a river that's fed by glaciers where the glaciers have played an important role in the past. And then what that revealed was that there's a handful of these really critical locations. So there was the towns of Hinton and Lake Louise and Rocky Mountain House as well as the Bighorn Dam, which is the largest reservoir in Alberta. Um, and all these locations are going to have their summer river flows change quite dramatically when we no longer have glaciers providing their melt through late summer. And I would say this is probably my most uh, dramatic and <laughs> revealing finding, um, especially the Bighorn Dam, because it creates this massive lake called Lake Abraham. and Downstream of it are cities like Edmonton and all of the towns, um, the numerous, numerous towns that Edmonton will service and that all along the course of the North Saskatchewan River, where folks are getting their water from. So that was, uh, you know, very troubling, but interesting for sure to find.
0: Wow. And what kind of historical data are you relying on? Like, were people measuring water flows in the early 1900s or...? Um yeah where where are you getting this information from
1: <laughs> That's uh, exactly it so one of the challenges in glaciology in Canada is that we don't have a ton of data on the glaciers themselves Um, We might compare with a place like Switzerland, where they've been really great at collecting (laughs) um, lots and lots of data on their glaciers for a long time and they live very close to them. Whereas in Canada, you know, we don't have that same data, so it's hard to actually know what's going on on the glaciers themselves in decades past. But what we have had is a really great and useful um, river flow measurements all across the province and in many places across Canada. And so we might not know what's happening on the glaciers themselves exactly, but we have measured the effects downstream. And that's, you know, if we care about the effects downstream, well, it's great that we measured that. Um, and so that, those are the types of databases or data sources that I was using.
0: And are those provincial data sets or is that uniform across Canada?
1: Yeah, they're available across Canada, which is really, really great because now I can look at BC too. <laughs> Wonderful.
0: Uh, and is that what you're currently working on, ongoing? So
1: I have changed a little bit. Um, one thing that I learned through that project was that glaciers are a really important part of this problem, but there are many, many other parts of this problem as well. So I've tried to expand my work a bit to try to not understand just only the glacier aspect, but also like how do... Uh, How did just warming temperatures broadly impact um things like how the snowpack accumulates and then melts seasonally or the types of rain events that we see and so trying to figure out how can we simulate river flows throughout an entire region where we have multiple you know climate zones and a whole bunch of different driving weather features how can we do all of that all at once and the answer that I've pursued was using machine learning to try to do this. So to come up with fast and accurate and also interpretable machine learning models to simulate river flows across British Columbia and Alberta. And where that's brought me now is to think about, well, if we can simulate river flows across the region, how might we think about how heat waves impact river flows and have impacted river flows across uh western Canada and so currently I'm really thinking a lot about heat wave impacts.
0: Yeah I can imagine that a heat wave could go either way it could either increase the snow melt but also increase the evaporation um does it increase the water supply or does it constrict it?
1: Yeah great question um it does complicated stuff. (laughs) So it really depends on the timing of the heat wave and what else is going on in your basin. So we can think about the June 2021 heat wave. And when that hit, you know, a lot of basins had a lot of snow. And so they flooded and water levels went really high for those days. But some basins did not have any snow. And so they just dried out. And so you can have these diverging responses where some rivers get a lot of water, some do not. But then later on in the season, because we lost that much snow so early, you know, then river flows are lower than normal. So heat waves really contribute to, I think like volatility over a season where it would be a lot nicer to have uh, an average amount of water all the time, but instead they give us a lot of water at first and then not a lot of water later, which is hard to manage. And also it's, it's hard from the perspective of ecosystems, right? Like we think about salmon coming upstream in the fall. And if we had a heat wave in the spring that depleted snow earlier than usual and caused there to be less water later on, um, it can have pretty you know devastating impacts for um, ecosystems.
0: It's amazing how ecology is so complex and one event can have multiple outcomes.
1: Totally. Everything is so connected. (laughs) and That's what makes it, uh, I think, so hard, but also so interesting, right?
0: Absolutely. Uh, Do you do most of your work in the lab or do you get out into the field very often?
1: So I am mostly a lab person and by lab, I mean my laptop. (laughs) So I don't really, I'm not somebody who needs to be going out to the field because I use all of this uh, pre-existing data that's has already been collected, which I'm very appreciative of, um, because I know how difficult field work can be for my colleagues. Um, and yeah, so I do a lot of uh, just like modeling on my on my computer, um, which has been I I guess good in a sense through COVID because I've it's been easy to work from home and do those types of things.
0: Has COVID impacted your work at all? Have you still been able to to collect data, or have your uh, colleagues been able to go out? Um,
1: So for me, it's been, you know, from a work sense, the most challenging part of COVID has been um, the teaching aspect of things. That's where things have really been dynamic. Um, Not so much the research stuff, just because I am, you know, quite transferable with a a computer can be anywhere. Um, I know for my colleagues, it's been really, really challenging. Um, I think for a lot of us, you know, a hard part through this has just been the inability to plan, you know, like if you're trying to make up plans for a trip or to see somebody in a month, like good luck, right? And then all of that, especially in field work is so complicated because you have to do it so many months in advance. And there's so much work that has to, that's involved in the preparations. Um, So I really, it's, yeah, I, I really empathize for my colleagues who have had, you know, field studies be so complicated these past years. Um, but, you know, fingers crossed and hopefully, hopefully folks are able to have a, a better summer this year.
0: It's been the same with the museum, trying to plan whether whether or not we'll be able to have kids in the, the museum or not, or um, if we'll be shut down again. So I totally empathize. Yeah, no,
1: it's hard for planners, I think, across the board.
0: You mentioned that you teach. Uh,
1: what courses do you teach? Yeah, I have taught the... Uh, geoscientific data analysis course a couple of times Um, so that is an upper year undergrad or like early graduate level course on how we might think about asking and answering questions in the geosciences quite broadly but from a data science perspective so what are the tools we might use if we have a question what are the data sources we might use Um, and how can we then interpret and really understand what our data means and it's been a really fun experience to teach uh it's been i think a really topical class that people are interested in because we're in this sort of data revolution period especially in the geosciences um but then also it's been just fun to teach because teaching is fun (laughs) and like hard to do uh it's been a, a great i think i've learned more as a teacher than i ever learned as a student you know it's it's funny when you 're at the front of the class and people look to you <laughs> with a question and you 're the one that has to answer
0: it 's a whole different ball game that 's the mark of a good teacher learning just as much as the students <laughs> yeah that's uh well, thank you <laughs> I hope so Now you clearly love your work, um, but if you had to name one best part of your work, what would it be What
1: sparks joy that 's a really great question i What I really enjoy is the feeling that it, it's quite like tangible and present. Um, I really sometimes struggle when the problems are abstract and far away, but being able to, you know, work on this code and think about how we might simulate a river flow and at the same time, you know, be able to pop over <laughs> and go see a river that I'm studying, um, that is what sparks joy. So knowing that it's close and I think quite relevant and I really think it's like important for people um, and hoping that it can be applied for good, um, really for the public good. That's, uh, I think, what makes me the most excited when I'm doing my work.
0: That's great. Yeah. In most of these interviews, I have to ask people, why is your research applicable or relevant to the outside world? But for you, it's quite obvious. Thanks. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm really, I think that, that part of that is comes from my engineering perspective background to maybe where, you know, we spent time learning about like the ethics of engineering and we, we learn how it's important for the engineers to do public good. And that's like kind of the oath that we take. And that's really something that I've brought with me that I think has shaped the frame from which I, uh, you know, will craft my research problems. It's like, how can we make it tangible and applicable and really for public good. Um, That's really something that I've learned and value.
0: Now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um, There's a downside to every job. So what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? You know, yeah,
1: it's not all sunshine and roses, Uh, especially in climate science. Climate change is hard. Like working in the climate space is a very frustrating endeavor right um it can just be hard to stay positive when there is so much when there's so much going wrong and also the stakes are very high and also like there are very powerful people who oppose your work um it's hard to stay you know positive um and to stay motivated in that sort of environment. So I'd say like navigating that sort of climate driven dread is hard. But at the same time, I get a lot of hope through doing this work, too, um, because one of the most important things that we know is that, while well, climate change is a big problem. It's solvable. And for all of the complexities, you know, in these climate change reports and the IPCC reports and all these things, it's fundamentally a pretty simple problem problem that's really well understood so we know what the problem is we know what the solution is and we know that it is solvable um and so that's really what gives me hope when i'm feeling like it's a kind of all doom and gloom Um, i think it's really important to know that it's not doom and gloom it's actually a very solvable problem
0: that's a very healthy approach especially in such a um A scary situation yeah
1: i mean i learned that you have to right like there's just really no other way i don't think you can wallow in how challenging it is um i mean and one of the important things that i learned too is just that you know these doom and gloom narratives they serve to drive inaction right when people feel that despair and they're just like it doesn't motivate anybody. And we feel like the battle's already lost before we've fought it. And that is entirely counter to the whole point of all of this. And it's actually, you know, I think a topic that comes from um, vested interests who are anti-climate science, period. Um, And so we have to be careful about what are the messages that we're listening to and where are they coming from? And if they're not, you know, serving our goal, then we should find a new message.
0: That's a really, really useful insight. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Now, talking about you personally, uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your uh, studies at all?
1: Yeah, so I'm gay. And that, I think, absolutely impacts my studies and career broadly. Um, You know, science is a really social thing. It's done... people. Um, And the questions that we ask are really shaped by identity and experience and who we are and what we value. And because queerness is a part of, you know, everything that I am and I do, then it for sure is shaping my perspectives on science and how I ask questions. Um, Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm so interested and really value community a lot. And as a queer person, that's something that I didn't have for many years, right? And so, because I know what it's like to not have community and how hard that is, and I also know what it's like to have community and how wonderful that is, you know, that's one of the reasons why I really value it and approach my work from this community sort of perspective. Um, I think one of the really important things about queerness is you know the freedom that comes along with it it's freedom from expectation and that's a very powerful thing boiling it down to how it impacts work and career is a little like it feels strange in a sense um because it's just like one dimension of work but you know and work is one dimension of uh being a queer person but You know, in that sense, I think it's in part like empowered me to look at problems from a different perspective. And that's been a really valuable thing to have, um, you know, creative problem solving.
0: If you're already outside the box, you don't really have to work that hard to think outside the box.
1: Who needs the box? Yeah, (laughs) like that's, uh, I think, a really, you know, valuable thing. And it's funny because it it takes a lot of, you know, realization to know that you're not in the box. And then once you realize that, it you have opportunity to, you know, harness that. Like, take that to every part of your life and don't worry about where the box is or isn't.
0: Speaking of community, you've mentioned this a few times that it's really important to you. Uh, do you feel like the geophysical community is a really open and welcoming one? Or is it a little more uh, closed and insular? You know, I think that, It's a bit of both. Um, It's
1: welcoming in the sense that the people who I work with are wonderful, Um, you know, especially the glaciology and the geophysics grad students at UBC that I work with. They're amazing and really inspiring. Um, And I really love being able to work with these bright and interesting and fun and motivated and like inspiring people. I think that the field perhaps is like insular in the sense that there are definite barriers to access. Um, And that's, you know, glaciology specifically, but I think a challenge that we face in the geosciences more broadly. Um, You know, one dimension of this could be how we, you know, market (laughs) geosciences to be towards like outdoorsy folks. And we really like might value all of those things. Um, but what we're doing is, you know, I think problematic in the sense that, you know, when we pitch outdoorsiness is this thing you need to be, well, that comes along with this expectation that you have to be doing all these crazy things outdoors that, I mean, it's expensive and it takes time and not everybody lives close to mountains, right? And this is really, I think, limiting, because, you know, for me in my work, like I do it on a computer and I like math and I don't necessarily I'm not necessarily that person going on, you know, long ski tours um, like that's just, you know, not the experience of so many folks in the geosciences. And it's limiting when we suggest that that's like the end all be all and it limits who wants to then join the field. Um so I think if we can reframe, you know, what it means to be a geoscientist, um, you know, thinking about outdoorsiness not in the sense of these extreme sports, but in the sense of like connecting with place and connecting with where you are, um, and valuing that, I think that we would be able to become a more a less insular community.
0: I'm always amazed how many of our geoscientists spend so much of their time in a lab, like you said, working on a computer. You don't have to love camping to be a good geoscientist.
1: Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And, you know, even in, in COVID, too, something that we learned is, like, it is great to get outside, even if it's just a walk around the block, right? Like, I th- hopefully that can shift some of these ideas about... Um, you know, what it means to, you know, value our planet.
0: And as for insulated, I would hope that the glaciologists are well, well insulated. Yes, we, <laughs> we we certainly try. <laughs> um, you've painted a really fun picture of uh, ge- geophysics. If anyone's listening right now and wants to follow in your footsteps, what background or courses or even just experience would you recommend that they pursue to... Um, take up geoscience that is another
1: really great question daniel <laughs> um you know i think there is like a baseline level of you know math and physics perhaps that you might need or like to have if you're gonna be pursuing like a science um but really so you can you know get some math get some physics courses kind of take those boxes but i think that beyond that like really what it comes down to is like a lot of science is about asking creative questions and trying to find the questions that are, you know, complicated enough that they're like exciting, but not so complicated that you can't do it. (laughs) And like finding that space and that takes creativity and it takes um, time to figure out. So I would encourage folks to, you know, take courses that are all over the place, get different perspectives and, you know, don't take only science credits, like take humanities and learn how to think differently. Um, That's something that I, I really, really think is so important because, you know, when it comes down to it, I have learned a lot of my graduate stuff, um, you know, in grad school, like I picked up the skills that I did not have. Um, like the technical skills that I didn't have or the technical background that I didn't have while I was here, right? And so you can always learn the math and you can learn the physics and all of that stuff. But when you approach it with, you know, a fresh sense and, you know, values that encourage you to think creatively and differently, I think that's what's really important. Yeah. So I would recommend take all sorts of things, and if you like it, it
0: will work. It's good to have internal diversity uh, of experiences and perspectives uh, within your own head.
1: Absolutely. I agree.
0: Now, again, focusing on yourself, uh, which course was the most important for you? Which one turned you into a geophysicist?
1: Hmm. You know, I think one of the most important classes that I took in my undergrad was a class called Philosophy of Computing. And it was like a philosophy credit. And I took it as an elective. And I thought, you know, this should be interesting. I didn't expect it to be <laughs> so like transformative, you know. Um, but one of the really important things that we learned about that I found so eye-opening was about the different power structures that exist in, you know, computer sciences and computing more generally. Um, so, for example, we learned a bit about the history of how computing fields are, you know, often so filled with jargon and they're very challenging to get into like there are all of these barriers to begin and that has this effect of separating out people who are like quote unquote computer people versus like non computer people, right? And when I learned about that, it was so eye opening because I spent my entire undergrad terrified of computers (laughs) and I did not want to code. I found it to be so scary and I wasn't good at it. And I just was like, I am not a computer person. I can't do this. And when I learned about how, you know, the reasons why I had thought that were, you know, gatekeeping mechanisms, it opened the gate, you know, Um, and it allowed me to then pursue this degree where I'm, applying machine learning for all these fun things and it's like coding is not something that's scary it's something that's fun um so i'd say that that really you know shaped how i think about computers specifically but also just like powerful systems more broadly um it really inspired me to to think about why is it that i feel like i can't do something um, and then allowed me to overcome that
0: I definitely self-identify as an idiot. Um, so I c- completely <laughs> agree. <laughs> yeah. No, I get it. I've been there. Um I
1: I understand. Um, but I think it's, you know, you maybe even connecting it to a lot of what's happening currently with um, you know, the accumulation of power that we've seen with these giant corporations like Amazon or Google or Facebook, like having these gates to have the computer fields a bit more insular um, has really allowed for the accumulation of so much power. And, you know, they can destabilize democracies. And it's important to understand, like, where did all that power come from? And who is it serving? And again, like, realizing that, you know, these barriers are there, you know, intentionally, and, but they can be very they can be very much overcome.
0: Um, and that's an important thing. Sam, you've been really inspiring today, but I'm curious, who inspired you as you were going through your studies? Oh, thank you. <laughs> um,
1: I would say that I, I really am inspired by the geophysicists that I work with, um, especially my, the grad students. Um, you know, I just think that I'm constantly surrounded by people who are doing such interesting work Um, and they're so just like, they just don't stop, (laughs) you know, they, it's just really interesting to see the way that people who are, who have that kind of drive and who have that kind of passion and who use that to overcome all of these barriers and all of these challenges that they keep getting thrown at, um, and who are at the same career stage as me, like seeing that they can do it, it inspires me to know that i can do it too um so i'm very much inspired by my my fellow geophysics grad students
0: yeah i definitely think that we have some of the best grad students uh at ubc uh maybe even in canada uh they're always inspiring
1: <laughs> i totally agree they're they're great i feel like i really lucked out you know um that's it's such a jewel
0: now um for yourself. You're at the beginning of your career, but I'm curious, what would you like to be the legacy of your career when you retire? <laughs> you know,
1: I would just like to have a career. <laughs> I think um that I'm I'm really uh, at that point of my career. Um but you know what I don't think I'm super big into legacies. I don't think that I'm somebody who who wants to have uh you know something named after me or anything like that. I think if I could get through my career, just having been able to work with people who, you know, are uplifting and uplift them, like that's something that I would like to um, have. Um, So I'd like that. I would like that if people could think about working with me and, you know, be happy about it, (laughs) not be devastated that they had to endure working with me. um, That is something that I would like to have as a legacy
0: again you keep going back to that theme of community um and that's something that i notice when i'm interviewing people uh usually people who are at the beginning of their career have a very physical tangible legacy that they'd like to have and people at the end of their career uh usually say that it's the sense of community that they want to build and um i think your response reflects on your maturity oh well
1: thank you <laughs> i think i mean i really think it's important it's uh you know in climate like we're looking at things getting challenging right and we got to think about who are we going to turn to when the next crisis hits um you know when we saw those floods in the fraser valley like it's neighbors helping neighbors and like that's how we get through these types of events and that's what we that's what we need um so i really i do think it's a very important thing
0: now i've asked you about where you think you're going but i'm going to take it to the depersonalized sense um Where do you see your field going in the future? And uh, what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of the changes that are coming down the road? And um, yeah, so that they can prepare for them.
1: You know, it's uh, interesting to think about the future of glaciology uh, as they melt away. (laughs) I think that in the hydro area, you know, technically, I think we're heading towards a world with... um, We have these two camps of you know physics based models going forward and also you know machine learning stuff going forward i think the near-term future is finding ways to fuse those two two ways of thinking and i think that's going to be really really rich and allow for a lot of new questions to be asked that we previously weren't able to Um, so that's kind of the technical side of things i think you know perhaps taking a step back I am really optimistic that we will become a more inclusive field and a more inclusive environment. The sense that I get is that, you know, all of so many young folks who are joining these fields, like that's something that we all really value and want and demand from our universities and from our workplaces. So and there's so much work being, or <laughs> we hope there is so much work being done to address a lot of these uh, systemic issues that we face. Um, so I, I'm you know hopeful that in the future we become a better field to work in and a field that uh, can be more inclusive. But I think it's going to take uh, pretty dramatic, pretty dramatic changes, not just at you know, research group levels, but at university and within the academy more broadly. Um, So hopefully, (laughs) hopefully we see improvement and we can see our field grow. Otherwise, we're going to have all of these self-imposed limits and we'll be in a worse field because of it.
0: It's amazing. You um, take on something as depressing and terrifying as climate change, and you put a positive spin on it, and you do the same with the field of studying climate change. Uh, So that's, again, really inspiring. Well, I think the only way out is through, (laughs) so might as well make it better. (laughs) Sam, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything that I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go?
1: Well, yeah, thanks for... Thanks for having me. This was really, this was really just a, a, fun, a fun chat. It's nice to talk with you.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. It's nice to get to know you. And uh, thanks for sharing your knowledge and your passion, your optimism, um, especially in the face of something as scary as climate change. And um, well, just thanks in general. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you too. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.